You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank, Thank you. you for joining Thank us. you. <laughs> that was great. It's, uh, it's a clip from uh, Wise Blood. Oh, An appropriate okay. uh, choice given the tenor of your yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, did you, did you memorize that? That lives in my soul, unfortunately. Forever, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's got lots of uh, Ladies and gentlemen, with us tonight, we have one of America's premier authors. He's the author of Cold Mountain, 13 <coughs> Moons. His newest book is a noir, gothic, southern gothic thriller, Nightwoods. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Charles Frazier. Thank you. Charles, uh, let's start with a reading. You okay. ready to go? All right. Well, <laughs> we can that, start talking if you prefer. But no. I, well, let me read um, just the the beginning of the book because um, it it kind of sets up uh, the main character and the main situation. Luce's new stranger children were small and beautiful and violent. She learned early that it wasn't smart to leave them unattended in the yard with the chickens. Later, she'd find feathers, a scaled yellow foot with its toes clenched. Neither child displayed language at all, but the girl glared murderous expressions at her if she dared ask where the rest of the rooster went. The children loved fire above all elements of creation. A heap of dry combustibles delighted them beyond reason. Luce began hiding the kitchen matches except the few she kept in the hip pocket of her jeans for lighting the stove. Within two days, the children learned how to make their own fire from tinder and a green stick bowed with a shoelace. Tiny cavemen on Benzedrine couldn't have made fire faster. Then they set the back corner of the lodge alight and Luce had to run back and forth from the spring with sloshing tin buckets to put it out. She switched them both equally with a thin willow twig until their legs were striped pink and it became clear that they would draw whatever pain came to them down deep inside and refuse to cry. At which point, Luce swore to herself she would never strike them again. She went to the kitchen and began making a guilty peach pie. I, you know, Charles, those two children that you so aptly describe in an opening that is an absolute model of riveting economy are at the core of a mystery. And this novel really is, we were talking about this earlier, this novel really is a, a fabulous noir that kind of uses these children as, uh, in a sense, the, the heart of the mystery, who they are, and they won't say a word. So uh, that's kind of... Yeah. That must be a, present a challenge for a writer to... <laughs> yeah, to, uh, I, th I think there was this thing about tying your hand behind your back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, to, to, 
to take away one of the things that's a major tool as a writer in developing a character. Uh, these, these two kids who are maybe six uh, don't talk. So. Now, uh, as, as you develop them, when you came up with the kids, did you know what they had seen, what they might say? Were they able to talk? Uh, or did you just all of a sudden present yourself with this uh, yawning abyss and say, oh my God, what have I done to myself? Yeah, uh, the latter. Um, <laughs> so I, I'd been working on the book maybe six months, and Luce was a, an equal character with maybe uh, a ten or a dozen other characters. And I was just trying to get to know this place and these people and I, I was sitting um, sitting at the beach one day with a notebook in my lap uh, so I could, you know, pretend I was working. Um, and, um, and that first line, uh, Luce's new stranger children were small and beautiful and violent, popped into my head and I wrote it down. And then I thought, you know, this kind of changes the book, doesn't it? Um, so... So it was a matter of discovering who these children were. Why is this young woman who um, uh, loses 20-something, uh, and she's the caretaker of an old uh, 19th century mountain lodge in the southern Appalachians. And you know, at a time in her life where she should be most engaged with the world, she's kind of holding the, the world at arm's length. Um, so uh, here, here are these weird, violent, dangerous kids that that have appeared in her life, and it turns out that they're the children of her murdered sisters, and she has to figure out how to draw them back into the world. They've been traumatized by uh, witnessing the really brutal murder of their mother, uh, and probably physically abused in some way by their stepfather, Bud. Um, and so she's focused on how to bring them into the world, uh, back into the world, though she has no maternal instincts or no maternal model um, and doesn't quite realize that she needs to be brought back into the world as well. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, we might want to mention is that this is a book set in the midst of the 20th century, not the midst of the 19th. Yeah. And that's what an interesting choice for you. Um, well, you, you know, I never set out to be a, to, a writer of historic fiction. Um, well, but for, as you said, for your children... The 60s are history. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I'm looking around trying to, you know, yeah, like the, 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 the 60s are not history. The 60s are history. Um, yeah, um, I, I really wanted to get out of the 19th century. So. Now, one of the things that I think is so entertaining about this book is the, the prose voice. You develop this great kind of, uh, it's, a, it's like there's some raconteur telling us this story. <laughs> and, and I really love the, the, the voice that you've developed. Did that just, was that, did that spring from your forehead? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know when you read a book, this book is, you know, how much you think about narrative voice. This book is in limited third person, and if you go look at, um, at some description of that 
kind of thing uh, online or in an actual book. Um, you know, you, it's it's unclear what the limitations are, um, but limited third person is you know is limited to the to the you can only get inside one character at a time, and the way I always look at that is um, you are not getting Luce's thoughts unedited, you know, like a tape of her thoughts or Bud the killer's thoughts. That there's this intermediary, there's this storyteller, the narrator, uh, and this person is telling you, here's what Luce thinks, here's how she thinks, here's how Bud thinks. Uh, it's not me telling you, it's, there's this, there's this storyteller voice. Um, I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, when I walk around in the woods, can I point at, at this plant and say, oh, the name of that is, you know, so-and-so, and the Latin name is so-and-so. And no, um, but my, sometimes my narrator, the, that narrative voice needs to know that. So I have to construct that knowledge for that voice. And, and finding that voice and hearing it uh, as I sit down to write uh, is, a, is a big part of, of gaining some momentum on a book. Well, you know, as you say that, it just strikes me as so fascinating how many levels of story there are in this book because each of these characters has their own stories and their own perceptions, and you've got your your perceptions as the writer, and then you've got the narration voice. You, there are so many levels of story in this book, and I think that's what makes your book so interesting and involving to us is because we're all telling ourselves our own stories. So to see you, to read you in the process of telling us this story uh, speaks to some really uh, powerful part of who we are just as humans. Well, I, I mean, I just love that whole process of storytelling, whether it's, um, well, I mean, when you tell stories about things you did in your youth, are you a reliable narrator Absolutely of those not. events. <laughs> you know? Don't believe a word. <laughs> so uh, I, I always try to be aware of th those levels of truth, fiction, and not just, not just fiction as a lie, but fiction as art. Um, so I hope when we all tell our stories of... Uh, youthful adventures and whatever that there's that that there's a, this layer of art to the lies that we tell um, so that it's you know it's this it's it's a very stacked kind of uh, of thing for me telling a story and what the you know what the reliability of information is what the the voices that you're hearing the information the language that those speakers are using all of that stuff plays into it well you know this book is is a really uh, a, in many ways it's a toe tapping uh, crime piece of crime fiction because from the get go from the first page <clears throat> when we meet those kids we know that something really bad happened to them and it ain't over yet and i'm wondering how much you know knew of as you wrote the book how much you knew of what had happened and how much of you knew of 
what was to come and how much how those two worked for you as a storyteller and a writer yeah um it's a it's a really messy process for me i, I know writers and it works for them uh, you know you you think a lot you make an outline and then you follow the outline but i can't uh, i can't work that way i've tried um so the first year of working on a book, I'm just trying to figure out who these people are. Who, who am I writing about? Who is Luce? Why is this young woman living in this old abandoned lodge as a caretaker by herself? Uh, you know, uh, it's a mile across the lake to the town that she grew up in, but it's an hour around the lake shore. Um, and she has very little desire to go back there. Uh, who, who are these people? And then once I got some knowledge of the people, uh, how, do they, how do they connect up? Um, you know, what are their relationships? And then the last thing I start thinking about is, is plot. Um, even though this, this novel is fairly... Um, it's tightly I mean, plotted. It's very, it's really, I love, that's one of the things I love about it. Yeah. I mean, you kind of, it's really a page turn. You want to find out what the hell's going to happen. And yeah, but who's, it, that, who's that's get the, it when. that comes, that comes toward the, you know, that, that's, that's a lower priority on figuring out the book. It's hmm. what the, what the plot is. Well, you know, too, uh, when you talk about uh, this book, it seems it's such a, a well-wrought mystery and it has these, all these elements of, noir to it and one of the things I like is that we're at a stage where a book that's a really wonderful piece of literary creation can be equally informed by literary works and also by movies too and you know the the, the noir tradition <clears throat> is as much from movies as it is from from novels yeah well there was there was a kind of a circular thing there that um, Black Mask magazine mm. Uh, in the what late twenties, thirties, um, pulp fiction. Yeah, pulp fiction for sure. Where um, great writers like uh, like Hammett and Chandler and a whole bunch of of lesser lights um, got their first publications were in were in Black Mask, um, and then those kinds of narratives fed into film noir in the in the 40s and and 50s so um you know there's there's a there's, there's just this kind of reciprocity <coughs> there well there was also i think you know for you as a as a writer you were looking at movies as much as you were looking at books yeah yeah um yeah watching a movie like out of the past uh, <coughs> with robert mitchum uh, and and so much of it for me was not so much the plot or that kind of thing is just the atmosphere of those movies you know just what they can do on a low budget with the angle of light through venetian blinds you know when when that's all you can afford to have for sets um, uh, but, but just the way that feels or the way you do you know you do the venetian blinds and then you've got this little trumpet solo coming in and uh, those those kinds of touches, um, and you know, with uh, you know, with uh, uh, writing a novel, I can't have Chet Baker in the background um, 
playing, but how to how to write so that you maybe feel just a little bit of that that kind of mood. Well, uh, you might not have Chet Baker in the background playing, but uh, uh, when I read this book, I, as we were talking about earlier, uh, normally I would listen to something instrumental because I don't like it to the vocals <clears throat> to mess with my reading process. But with this, I was listening to Nick Cave and Your Funeral, My Trial, all those murder ballads, because this seemed very much <laughs> like you know, one of those murder ballads turned into a novel. Well, the, uh, yeah, and that, those old uh, those old Southern Appalachian murder ballads that go all the way back to the British Isles um, were very much on my mind. Do, do any of y'all know those those things? Um, something like um, uh, "Darling Corey," that song. Um, well, I'll give I'll give you just the most of them. A young woman falls in love with a worthless guy and we're all worthless the worthless guy (laughs) knocks up the 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 charming young woman and when he finds out that he may have some responsibility coming his way uh murder is in the cards and in i think it's darling Corey, uh the 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 guy the worthless guy takes her down by a river and she her line in the song is William oh William please tell me your mind and he says my mind is to kill you and leave you behind and he throw, kills her throws her in the river and and uh, but he ends up with a rope around his neck um, getting ready to drop down a hole now, one of the things I think I, I really love the your portrait of crime and the the '60s in this novel, and especially the the drug culture, because you talk about something I thought was really interesting: uh, the inhalers that people used to use. I mean, I had an albuterol inhaler for uh, <laughs> asthma, but I mean, my mine didn't come with uh, with uh, with benzedrine in it. No, no benzedrine in my inhaler. Damn. <laughs> I don't know any, anybody uh, uh, sort of beatnik uh, uh, literature lovers, Jack Kerouac and all that. Uh, I can't remember the exact dates, but um, but for a while, you could get one of those sinus inhalers. You know, it was like a like a Vicks inhaler now, and inside the plastic tube was a little woolly strip of some kind of fiber. And that was infused with benzedrine. So when you couldn't buy, when you couldn't get a prescription for benzedrine, you could buy one of those inhalers and crack it open and twist that little uh, that little little ribbon of uh, of chemicals up and swallow it, and then you then you'd just taken a load of benzedrine. Uh, and those got uh, got outlawed in. Um, late 50s early 60s right at the time of this book so one of the characters just absolutely loves benzedrine and um and now his favorite way of delivering it has been taken away uh i'd like you to talk about you know your vision of you know uh mixing 
the the standard trajectories of noir fiction and crime fiction with the with the uh, kind of odd peculiarities of the Southern Gothic and the way you would kind of use that to <coughs> take stu turn stuff off the normal trajectory. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, film noir is uh, I mean it's such you know such a core American art form, um, but we have kind of expectations from it and those expectations carry over into current movies um, and frequently the resolution of plot points ends up in action rather than character um, and there there are all kinds of things that that we've come to expect in storytelling in that tradition in mystery thriller noir tradition um, that okay, these elements of plot lead to this kind of outcome. And one of the things I was having fun with in this book, as a writer anyway, and I hope readers have fun with it, is being led in a direction that you think you know where you're going and then kind of taking a big swerve at some point and, and, uh, and things going in another direction. The other, the other thing is that... Um, I wanted this book to use those kind of elements that sort of the, those mystery thriller noir elements are, are kind of propulsive. Uh, they make a narrative want to go forward at a high rate of speed. But literary fiction that is interested in character and place moves at a slower rate of speed. And I was very interested in um, in combining those two paces of of storytelling. And you you were doing this thing with your hands a while ago. What what was that? <laughs> well, the, there's part of this plot that wants to go, but the rest of it. But but what you get is the, <laughs> and that's yeah. a lot scarier to tell the truth. <laughs> by the time you you uh, by the time. It's like those scenes in, in the movie where things are, are, it's really inevitable. You know what's going to happen, and it's still extremely terrorizing, yeah. I think. And, and Bud is such a great monster. I love Bud. Every time we're with Bud, <clears throat> I'm thinking, I really like this guy, but I really hate him. He's despicable. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he does horrible things to other people and convinces himself that he is the victim not the people he has victimized. Let, let, me, let me read you just this little... This is, this is Bud as a, you know, like, teenager. Bud was a handsome man, at least in the retrograde style of the expired Southern 50s he still loved so much. High cheekbones, sideburns, upturned collars, and a forelock shaped into a perfect comma down his forehead with a two-fingered swipe of royal crown pomade. Bud was nobody's real name. Sometime in youth, a deluded soul had considered him a friend and dubbed him Buddy Buster. He had a criminal record by the time he was barely a teenager, caught shoplifting a coat pocket of yellow Sun 45s from a dime store. From his first day in high school, Bud kept a small caliber pistol in his locker mostly to impress girls and to insinuate himself into the company of bullies and roughnecks. He was successful on both fronts. 
at 14 in an era when it was daring to show up at a party with a beer or two, Bud once arrived with three cases of Schlitz in a stolen car. He announced his presence by cutting a donut in the front yard and then jumping out and popping the back end to reveal 72 can lids studded into a trunk full of crushed ice, reflecting the porch lights like the crown jewels of a minor country, which made Bud the hero of everyone except the kid whose parents were gone for the weekend. <laughs> so, so Bud's life of crime kind of uh, escalates from there. And the, the problem is with Bud, of course, is as much as he wants to be competent, he's not quite as competent as he uh, dreams that he would be. And I think that's yeah. what makes him such a, a, an entertaining character to read. He, he's not Hannibal Lecter. Um, He's not one of these killers who has laser beam focus on his victims. Um, I kept trying to tell my editor, um, no, this guy is not those characters. He's a mess. He's confused. He panics. He gets scared like everybody else. He's told himself so many lies about his own innocence and, and victimization that he believes them. Um, he, he, you know, he's, he's just, uh, he, he's also charming. Um, you know, he, he can con people. And he cons the reader too, when he's has forms this great friendship with somebody who should probably like kill him on sight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, and, uh, the, the deputy sheriff in this town become really good buddies, um, and um, uh, there's, there's a sort of a father-son relationship, and there's also a dealer-user kind of relationship there. Now, as, as much as we enjoy all the crime fiction aspects of this, too, there's a really wonderful romance in this. And it's very understated and kind of goofy between two people who are about as skilled at romance as Bud is at crime. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, uh, as I said, Luce um, has uh, isolated herself from the world for reasons you find out later. Um, and then these, you know, these kids come and disrupt her life. She thinks nature, living alone, so, you know, the solitude, observing the change of seasons and the process of nature uh, are sufficient. That they're compensations for the difficulties of life. Then these kids come um, when she's had no mother, no example. Um, then this guy inherits this old lodge she lives in. He comes up to the mountains. Um, his, he's from Florida, which tells you something immediately. Um, and uh, he, his, his sense is, I'm going to sell this place quick as I can. I'm going to take the money. I'm going to buy an Austin Healey, um, move move to Key Largo, eat grouper every day of the week, wear flip-flops and shorts until the money runs out. And then he meets this woman that he can't get out of his mind. And all of a sudden, this kind of intellectual drifter uh, that um, I think probably all of us have known or been at some point 
uh, has this thing that he feels like he'd like to see if he could be committed to. You know, uh, one of the things I think that's so nice about this book is the sense of timelessness in it, in that uh, the people, the characters, the situations are all kind of, because they're in this remote part of America that is arguably still remote. You can find places like that right now. Yeah. And it feels like this could be taking place. It takes place in the 60s. It could take place right now. It could have taken place 100 years ago. And I think that's one of the things that lifts this book and makes it seem um, more like, a, I guess, an American myth. You know, like the, the, what, what uh, the Greeks were writing about when they brought Zeus down and such. You know, it's that, <laughs> that kind of mythic fiction that, that just right. speaks to the the core of who we are, you know, and, and Americans, we're always at the edge of, uh, there, on one side of us is civilization, on the other side of us is yeah. nature. Yeah, so, so Luce is in this lodge that was a kind of fancy place in the 19th century, but it's a mess now, a kind of, a, a, you know, a, a deteriorating mess. The lake's there, the town's there, behind her is hundreds of miles of wilderness uh, so so yeah it's that it's that uh, American um, um, sort of the Turner doctrine you know you've got well we've created civilization and we're gonna we're gonna move out into the wilderness and and that wilderness forms the values of the civilization in a lot of ways well and not to put too fine a point upon it you're out there uh, bicycling through that wilderness even as you know when you go back that's what you'll be doing yeah oh as soon as i get back home bike goes mountain bike goes on top of the car and i i hit the woods for for a while i, I mean i'm it, it almost feels like part of the writing process for me now that um to to be out in the out in the woods um most days when i'm writing i middle of the day I go out and ride walk run whatever it is um, and then come back home and and work um, the the guys at the bike shop I go to um, they're all, always saying oh here's Charles he's he's out there in the woods thinking about his books every day and like, no no I'm not thinking about my books when I'm in when I'm in the woods. But I think what happens is is that your experience in the woods informs what happens when you sit down behind yeah. the, the computer. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just watching all those minute changes day to day as the seasons uh, you know, flow one to the other. Um, or just thinking about um, the way the light falls in, uh, you know, in a cove as opposed to being around on uh, on a point of uh, you know of a mountain that's more exposed to light, there's a scene where these kids, these these strange, troubled kids, are out on a horse, and they're going they're going down into these deep coves. They're sort of sort of going side hill, around a mountain, going into these deep dark wet coves, out into these dry open exposed. Um, uh, uh, hillsides, then back in, you know, just this rhythm, and you know, and that's certainly something that I don't think about, but 
but I've done, you know, a thousand times or more uh, on on bike rides or runs. You know, I, I think that, uh, too, just the sense of the landscape that you bring to your work, all your work is really, I mean, there's a big chunk. If we took out every scene, people out of every scene in all your books and put all those scenes together, it'd be a pretty long book. It'd just be just <laughs> descriptions of the land. Gee, I got, I got to some point on this book where the plot and, you know, just making sure everything was consistent and the timeline was consistent, all those little details. Because the last thing I want a reader to do is to stop and be doing math, you know, like, wait, is she 27 or is she 37? That kind of thing. Doing all that plot stuff, all uh -huh. that just due diligence on plot. I was thinking, man, the next book's going to have no plot whatsoever. <laughs> it's going to be a guy sitting on a rock looking at a tree. <laughs> now, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of thing that you might write next. You've moved us up to the 60s. That's a pretty significant move for you. Wow. Radical. Radi <laughs> radical move. Uh, do you think... Where do you think that you could write next? And, and I, I just like you to maybe think about, you know, the way the progression of your books. Do you see yourself um, moving forward, or is does one book do you, does one book stand upon the shoulders of the the last one? I, I don't think so. I, I think of them as separate um, separate things entirely, as much as possible. Um, but I, I never, you know, like I, said, I never intended to be a, a writer of historic fiction. So, um, I mean, before I started Cold Mountain, I was uh, I'd gone out to Wyoming to work on this book that I was was working on, and I was it was going to be a little writers' retreat, and uh, the main character drove an Audi 100, which was the current model. Um, mid-sized Audi at the time and um, the the um, uh, the plot involved these survivalist guys and some the main character's wife had run off to Mexico with this survivalist and he was and um, what that sounds good <laughs> yeah, well and, you know there was some good Mexico stuff in it I had about a hundred pages and I was really working away and I got home and my father who had recently retired at the time was working on a family history and he said uh, he was telling me this, the kinds of stuff he had turned up and he said well there was this there was this guy his name was Pinkney Inman uh, it was it was you know like my great great grand uncle um, he said yeah he was he was in some of the some of the most brutal battles of the war of the Civil War he um, um, was wounded several times and then wounded badly at Petersburg um, and uh, and walked deserted, walked home, and was killed by the home guard when he got home in a gunfight. And he said, you know, it's like a paragraph. And I I, I drove drove back home and kept thinking about that. And I thought that's not a paragraph for me. I can that's a novel for me. I I know how to tell that story. And immediately I jumped out of the. 20th century and into the 19th century, but it was only because I fell into a story that I thought I knew how to tell. 
Well, two, I think it's easy to think that uh, historical fiction, even though it's set in history, is all about the history, the part, the time in which it's told. But I really think that all of it, you know, <clears throat> your science fiction writers do not actually live in the future. Right. You don't have a time yeah. machine. You're not beaming back from uh, the Civil War. It's always about where we are now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has always felt to me that historic fiction is more about the time in which it was written than the time it's set in. And you just have to go look at something like The Scarlet Letter uh, to see to see that. Um, I mean, the, you know, that novel is, is really rooted in the mid-19th century, mm-hmm. not the time of Cotton Mather. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure. I, and it's not, I don't believe it's the, that writers uh, of historic fiction are thinking, no. I'm going to make this point about, or that I was thinking, I'm going to make this point about 1997. It's that you are immersed in 1997. Exactly. Um, and it... it has to come out in the book you write. And that's what makes re- reading your book so pleasurable because <clears throat> there's a kind of a double vision in all of them. We're immersed in this peerlessly recreated past, yet we're also immersed in the present in which we're reading it. And we know you were too. And that gives us a kind of, gives those books a kind of depth and an archetypal vision that makes them really a blast to read and immerse in. Well, thank, thank you. That's, I mean, re- re- you know, I, I love to I love to read. I love to be entertained by what I read. Um, I read widely. I always have. Uh, I was asked recently, you know, sort of go back and think about the writers that um, that most influenced you, and the. Um, the, the the guy who asked the question was 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 extremely serious and it just popped into my mind to say Franklin W Dixon does anybody anybody recognize Franklin W Dixon exactly <laughs> the so-called writer of the Hardy Boys stories which when I was a kid I would save up my money and you know, till I could afford to buy another Hardy Boys book. I love to be entertained by what I read, and I want to entertain. I, I, you know, the this sense of uh, a writer um, setting out to be difficult and impenetrable um, is is not something uh, that uh, that I value a whole lot. It's not something you do at all. This is a rockin' book. It's going to keep people awake. Now, um, assuming, I, I assume we're all still awake here. Any questions from the audience? Dorothy. It, it's not a question, but it's a comment. <clears throat> My brother-in-law lived in Savannah and was having all kinds of respiratory problems. Yeah. And I had just read Cold Mountain, and I told him that I thought they ought to move to higher ground because <laughs> that was what was in the book. If it was happening... During that period, it was probably the same thing, and they ended up moving to South Carolina, and now they're on their way to Charlotte. 
for another another move closer up, you know, further up the mountain. But, uh, um, but it was very effective. So yeah, there you are. <laughs> I'm I'm happy for the medical advice I, <laughs> I provided. <laughs> so somebody else back there. The, this. Uh, we're we're both doing. Okay. It. Yeah. <laughs> You could write, let's, let's hear from you. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, the books I love are books that that uh, really create, really insist on their own physical world, um, and then that they then let us inhabit that physical world, whether it's you know Joyce's Dublin or um, you know whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, in the science fiction world they call it world building. I mean, well, and that's what exactly what you do. Yeah, I mean, well, and when you're writing about the past, I don't think there's a lot of difference uh, between that and science fiction. No, because no. that the world of the 19th century or whatever previous century is science fiction to us. If we didn't if we didn't live there, then it's up to the writer to pull together the physical details that give it meaning and 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 make it three-dimensional and real at least as much as we can in the minds of the readers and the cultural details too because i mean one of the things that's so great about this book is the culture's you know so different you know in many ways it's subtle in yeah. some ways in some ways where it's familiar but it, yeah in the 60s of this book is you know is a uh, because it's an isolated place, Southern Appalachians, it's a, you know, it's a sort of an odd, odd 60s. Now we had another question from this gentleman here. Oh yeah, I, um, I, I just am talking about Cold Mountain. Uh, I just really admire the uh, way you weaved in the historical with the story. And the part about the Battle of the Crater. Yeah. So, so you you're related to the Catalucci Caldwells. Yeah. Have you ever read the the novel Catalucci by Wayne Caldwell? I haven't, but I, I've seen it online. You know, we got to read that. Yeah. Wayne's Wayne's a good friend of mine, oh, yeah. um, and uh, he's written two books set in that little valley in in Western North Carolina. Um, I, I think you'd love those those books. I'll check it out. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, that kind of history that involved that valley. 
until I was working on Cold Mountain. Um, and a lot of that was just wanting to know not so much what Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, you know, what that part of the war, but was that kind of brutality. I mean, you go into Cataloochee now. Have you ever, have you ever been there? most beautiful place I mean, just this beautiful isolated valley in Smoky Mountain National Park and I was hiking in there one day when I was just starting on Cold Mountain you go up this wonderful this trail big bold creek moss on all the rocks uh, um, and there's two graves up the hill and it's a father and a son. The kid was a young teenager. They were both just murdered, buried right there by the trail in the Civil War. Um, and that kind of casual brutality is part of what I wanted to get into that book. Um, not the, you know, the uh, you all who didn't grow up in the South probably haven't had the Civil War hammered into you as much that that sense of Robert E. Lee Stonewall Jackson as these saintly figures and the tragedy of Robert E. Lee going home after the Civil War and brooding about the failure of the lost cause um, any of you ever been to Lexington uh, Lexington Virginia you know the grave of Lee's horse and somewhere there's a grave of uh, of Stonewall Jackson's amputated arm you know it's it's just hilarious the 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 degree that southerners have gone to um, you know to to sanctify those leaders that led people like my ancestors who were dirt farmers uh, to their deaths. Yeah. I'm, I'm just fascinated with, with your talking about plot coming kind of last yeah. in, your, in your process. And I, I'm curious about what went on. Two things. First of all, the, the stimulus, the original stimulus, to sit down, I mean, you've got a blank piece of paper or you've, you've got a computer and yeah. you start writing something. Do you start with people? Do you start with places? Do you start with a philosophy, a place, uh, all of the above? Uh, how, and then eventually it, it comes into a, a book or a story. Yeah. But it seems, it seems like, a, it's like the old, you ask a songwriter, what came first, the lyrics or yeah. the music? Yeah. Well, so often for me, it's images, that there's just this picture that, that pops into my mind, kind of like that first line of the novel. But usually it's more a picture than, a, than in words. Uh, so that, that I, I mean, I can see it right now, this lake, a lakeshore, an old lodge that's either either a log lodge or has you know shake uh, shake roof and shingle sided um, you know a thing from a previous century that's in neglect hemlocks um, reflections on the water 
a town on the other side. You can just see it, maybe a church steeple sticking up. Maybe if the light catches it, you see a car, uh, but mostly you don't see you don't see something that small. It's far enough away. Uh, just seeing that picture and then thinking, who lives there? What's the story? Who, how, how, who inhabits this this place? Um, Bud, the the picture for him that was the start of Bud, was a car on a mountain road at night, really really dark. So you just get this suggestion of the mountains. Here's a car on this windy mountain road. The headlight beams are like these two these two cones of light. And then if you look closer, there's a guy in the car with a cigarette in his mouth and the dashboard lights reflecting on his face. And it's, who is this guy? Where is he coming from? Where is he going? So there's a lot of questions. My notebooks from early on in a novel are always, could Bud be related to so-and-so? Could Bud be, could, you know, could Bud be the killer of the of the uh, children's mother. And there, there are 20 questions that the answer was no, and one question that I said, uh, yeah, maybe he is. So it, it's kind of that way. How yeah. much does, I, I, I live in the late 50s in East Tennessee, which is not that yeah. far from what you're not Where in East Tennessee? Terrible college. Yeah. And I, you know, I learned to talk with a mock rotten pot accent. <laughs> But the thing that really struck me was the major entertainment was sitting down and telling stories. Yeah. I would go to somebody's house and there would be yeah. these things about what had happened in the family years ago and I had this whole cast of characters that I never met that sort of followed me north. <laughs> and it was, your books have that, that sense of, of long afternoons on a front porch just talking. Yeah. Well, in my family, I am, I have a, a brother and a sister and my mom's still alive. And, um, I am, um, maybe third on the list of good storytellers in the family. <laughs> um, you got rewarded for making the people in town entertain, more entertaining than they really are. Um, funnier than they really are, um, so yeah, there was there was that uh, that sense. I mean, when I grew up, you know, there was television and all that stuff, uh, but um, but there was still that older culture of storytelling, and um, being a good storyteller was a thing you wanted to be. You wanted to get those laughs. You wanted to make people be quiet and listen, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So whether it was a, whether it was uh, on the front porch or, or maybe at the dinner table, you know, well, how was your day? Oh well, let me tell you this funny story about so and so that you know, but I'm going to fictionalize everything about it. And grade school children were yeah. masters at yeah. it. Was just... Well, you know, I mean, I don't know to what extent people actually sit down most nights at a dinner table and talk while they have supper. But, um, but when I was a kid, you were sort of responsible for contributing to the, to the talk. So, uh, you know, I th I, and, and there was a, there, I grew up in a real reading 
culture. Um, but but I you know I think that uh, I still think that sense of uh, of um, um, sitting down at a dinner table and being responsible for a portion of the the conversation. Um, uh, um, you know, like when our daughter um, used to bring boyfriends around, that was always a test. Okay, we're going to sit at the dinner table till ten o'clock at night. Telling stories. Let's see how you do. And there was no person in town that was not important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we they, they looked at each other and maybe exaggerated and distorted. But, yeah. But there was that sense that there were no invisible people. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, in this book, the the pool hall stuff, the hunters, those are those are the only people that I think of as being drawn from real characters in this book um, um, but the, you know they're the they're the minor characters that you'd be telling your story and it's like you know old so-and-so that hangs out on the bench outside the pool hall well he you know that yeah can i piggyback on my seat neighbor's question because that was yeah. actually mine as well was i walked in late apologies but um I was actually heading to a writer's group and came to this by serendipity, but um, everything that I'm told when I go to the writer's workshops and the various conferences, et cetera, is no plot, it's plot, it's plot, you just start with plot, and that's actually where my weakness is yeah. and my lack of interest, because <laughs> I, I like to think, oh, I'll just let it evolve, yeah. and whenever I come across published writers and good writers, they're saying the same thing as you, you're saying, so... I don't know, how would you balance out what we're told as sort of aspiring writers and what your experience is? Would you say, yeah, do it like I am? Or would you say, what would you say? I mean, I know writers that do it all kinds of ways. I know writers, and this seems so wrong and foreign to me, but it works for them, that start with theme. It's like, I want to write a book about the theme of so-and-so. And now, how can I, what characters will best, you know, embody this theme and what actions? Uh, my God, I cannot even imagine writing a book like that. It's, it's, I, to me, it's just what, what engages your language? Um, you know, what makes you want to start stringing sentences together? It's the old uh, rock and roll uh proverb translated into writing if it reads good it must be right (laughs) and what he offers us reads very well ladies and gentlemen we've just been privileged to have charles frazier join us and he'll be signing books and for you guys and i suggest you buy them all and immerse yourself (laughs) in these wonderful uh words because uh sitting down with those paper and hardcover things is really a unique experience and it's I think the closest that we as a culture in a way can get to meditation and when we read those books and we all read them it's kind of like a group meditation even though we're all separated and I think that this is something we really need to get ourselves out of our own brains which are frankly overcrowded with the BS (laughs) (laughs) thank you for joining us Charles Thank you, and and thank you all.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.